0: Okay, well now we're going to pray, and as regulars will know, every time we pray, we first read a part of the Bible, this part of our service. Because our reading is quite long, it's a couple of chapters, we're going to read half of our reading, and then we're going to pray in light of that. So I'm going to read 2 Kings 23, starting near the end at verse 36, and then read all the way through chapter 24. So... 2 Kings, chapter 23, verse 36. So just as a little bit of context, as we've been working through two kings, there's been two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom's Israel, the southern kingdom's Judah. The northern kingdom has, has rebelled against God from the very start, and it, it has now been destroyed by Assyria. Um, The southern kingdom Judah hasn't been that much better. Um, Particularly there's been a dreadful king called Manasseh who was worse than the Amorites. So they were the people who were in the land beforehand. So they are about to go into exile. Uh, And that's where we find ourselves. That's where we pick up the story. So it says this. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebedah, the daughter of Pedeah, of Rumah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up. And Jehoiakim, because his servant, became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him Bands of the Chaldeans, and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah, at the command of the Lord, to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord... Would not pardon. Now, the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiakim his son reigned in his place. The king of Egypt did not come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned for three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. All that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to The city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother, and his servants and his officials, and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign, and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valour, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained, except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land. He took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000. And the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000. All of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place. And changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned for 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamathol, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. According to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Well, we pick up our reading from 2 Kings, chapter 25. And it says this, In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all round it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of the king, Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city, there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night, By the way of the gate, between the two walls, by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were round the city. They went in the direction of the Arabah, But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him in chains, and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls round Jerusalem. The rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vinedressers and ploughmen. And the pillars of bronze were in the house of the Lord and the stands and the bronze seas that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. They took away the pots and the shovels, the snuffers, the dishes for incense, and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service. The firepans also in the bowls. What was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold. And what was of silver, as silver. As for the two pillars, the one sea and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels were beyond weight. The height of one pillar was 18 cubits, and on it was a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits. A latticework of pomegranates, all of bronze, were all round the capital, and the second pillar had the same with the latticework. The captain of the guard took Saraiah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold... And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war and five men of the king's council he were were found in the city. and The secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath, so Judah was taken into exile out of its land. And over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahakim, son of Shaphan, governor. Now when all the captains and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, governor, they came with their men to Gedaliah at Mitzpah, namely Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, and Johanan, the son of Cariah, and Sariah, the son of Tanahoth, and Netaphathite, and Jeshaniah the son of Machathite. And Gadaliah swore to them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid because of the Chaldean officials. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. But in the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, son of Elishma of the royal family, came with ten men and struck down Gadaliah, and put him to death along with the Jews and the Chaldeans, who were with him at Mitzpah. Then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. In the thirty-seventh year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the twelfth month on the twenty-seventh day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, In the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments. And every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, according to his daily needs, as long as he lived." Well, minute we're going to have a look at the themes of that passage. But before we do, a couple of things to mention. The first thing to say is that there will be an opportunity to ask questions after the sermon. So I want you to know that it's coming up so you can think of any questions you may have. Another thing to mention is the uh, sermon outline that's in your service sheet, which you can use if that's helpful. And then, most importantly... Let's pray and ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that these historical events are recorded in in our Bible so that we can understand them. But not only that, we can read the messages and explanations from your prophets so we can understand the reasons why they're taking place. And also we can see the hope that is found because as we come to the end of two kings, it looks like all your promises have come to an end. And yet, actually, there is a glimmer of hope. Amen. Well, as we come to the end of two kings, let's see how far we have come. Now, you may be thinking, well, just how far back are we going to go? Back to the start of two kings? Maybe we could go back as far as 1 Kings, or maybe even as far as 1 Samuel. Well, actually, I think it's probably going to be helpful to go right back to the beginning and highlight a few recurring patterns all the way back to Genesis 1. So at the beginning, God creates everything. And the man and woman are given a garden. But after eating of the tree, we could say they are exiled from the garden. Or we might put it that they have to leave God's presence because they've eaten from the tree. Now at the same time as this banishing from the garden, there's also a promise made. That the serpent, the one who caused the fall, will be crushed we can take a brief uh, stop at the flood. Due to man's wickedness, God takes the world back to what it was like before he brought the order to creation. And then after the flood, God renews, or maybe recreates, or brings the order back to his creation. A bit later, God then chooses Abraham. And God promises Abraham will be given a land, become a great nation, will be blessed, and he will be the source of blessing and curse for the rest of the world. But Abraham's family have to leave the land for a period of time. It isn't that they're exiled, rather they find themselves in Egypt so they can survive a severe famine. Also, another thing that's going on at this time is God is patiently waiting for the sins of the current inhabitants of the land to reach their full extent. Once they do, it will be the task of God's people to bring God's punishment upon the people of the land. Now the means by which God's people are delayed from returning to the land is through Pharaoh who enslaves the people. But when the time comes, God rescues the people with his mighty hand. Yet their return to the land is delayed because they sin against God so that their time in the arid wilderness is prolonged. Once they do arrive in the land, they're told to drive out the people who are in the land which is something they never completely do. Now this was important because they were intended to be God's means of judgment for the sins of the previous inhabitants. Plus, if the Amorites remained in the land, they would influence God's people who would then turn from serving God and turn to Worship the nation's idols. And this is the very thing that happened. We can read about it in the book of Judges. It continues in the book of Kings. The people of Israel, the northern kingdom, with the help of the king, embraced the idolatry of the nations. Then the people of Judah and their king did the same. And so as we read today's passages, we see themes, motifs, and patterns that we've actually seen before in the history of redemption. So let's have a look. When Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, there's only one explanation for it. It's God who has banished his people from the garden because they rebelled against him. That's why they're to leave the garden that God has given them. But in today's passage, how might the exile of Judah be understood? Well, there's a lot happening that could cloud our understanding. There are numerous nations, many of which are fighting for the top spot. Babylon begins to get the upper hand and has begun to defeat a number of nations. The small insignificant nation that is known as Judah has got caught up in all of this, having made an alliance with Egypt. The alliance with Egypt was an unwise one simply because they weren't strong enough to stand up against Babylon. Egypt will fall to Babylon, and so so will Judah. So on a surface understanding, that makes perfect sense of what's happening. Nations rise up, and other nations succumb until the next nation rises up, and so on. However, though this appears to be what's happening, the reality is very different. Have a look at 2 Kings 24, reading from verse 2. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it. According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. See, what's actually happening is very different to what we prescribed, described a moment ago. Babylon is God's instrument. The means by which he's going to destroy Judah, as the prophet said he would. However, unwittingly, Babylon is dutifully carrying out God's will. This is as much God banishing his people from their land as it was when Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. And just as the case was in the garden, this could have been avoided if the king... And the people had listened to God's word and obeyed him. Is God worthy of their trust? Well, yes. He is the creator. He's the one who redeemed them from Egypt. He brought them through the wilderness and he gave them the land. What we can also see is that in the past, Israel had played the part of God's instrument of justice. So, as we said a moment ago, once the sin of the people of the land was complete, God brought the people out of Egypt to take the land God had given them. And they were punishing the people on God's behalf. But also, they were removing the people so they weren't influenced by them. They were to remove them so they wouldn't become like them. As God's treasured possession, the people of Israel were to be a priesthood for the nations. It's a role that they would never achieve if they worship the same gods as other nations and therefore be no different from the other nations. We can also add to this the description of Manasseh. We read it back in 2 Kings 21 verse 11. Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Notice this, Manasseh exceeded the sin of the people that they'd driven out. The people God had sent them to punish, their sin was worse. And notice that it doesn't make sense that God's own people escape justice. Rather, it makes more sense that God's people are the first to be judged since they're more culpable given what they know, what they've been given, and the responsibility that they have. And so, like the Amorites, the people of Judah will be removed from the land because they've sinned against their Redeemer and against their Saviour. But there is a distinction to be made between the Amorites. And the people of God. Genesis 12 1 3 lands the hope of the nations with the people of Israel. It's in no one's best interest for the nation of Judah to be completely annihilated. God's plan has been to fulfill his purposes through the people of Israel. But if Israel is gone, then what of God's plan? Can God simply overlook the sin of his people for the sake of his plan? This in itself is problematic. God cannot fulfill his purposes through a people who are outright rebelling against him at a level that's greater than he has punished before. He cannot overlook their sin. He must punish it. We can look at this same problem a bit more specifically. God has promised a serpent crusher to Adam and Eve. God has promised Abraham will be a means by which nations are blessed. And God has promised that David, he will have an eternal dynasty. But all of these problem uh, promises become redundant if the last of God's people are destroyed Under God's judgment. Now it's this where the significance of Jehoiakim comes in. Jehoiakim is not a particularly memorable character of the Bible. No one calls their children Jehoiakim, and with good reason. He was king for three months. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, just like his father. It was during his reign that Judah fell to Babylon. And Jehoiakim surrenders to the king of Babylon, and he was carried away to Babylon as prisoner. Now the remainder of chapter 25 is all about Zedekiah. Zedekiah. the final word of the book of two kings is about Jehoiakim the last four verses make a brief mention of this man let me just read it one last time and in the 37th year of the exile Jehoiakim king of Judah sorry I'm reading from verse 27 of chapter 25 in the 37th year of the exile Jehoiakim king of Judah in the 12th month on the 27th day of the month Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him, gave him a seat above the seats of the king who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given by him, by the king, according to his daily needs, as long as he lived." There's a new king of Babylon, and for whatever reason, we've not given it, he's favourable towards the king of Judah. Jehoiakim remains in Babylon, but he's no longer a prisoner. Now he becomes an honoured guest of the king. Jehoiakim's like Joash, if you remember him. When it looked like the Davidic line had come to the end, it was discovered a woman had saved a baby, And hid him with a priest. The baby would later become the king of Judah. It was a glimmer of hope. Now Zedekiah has been shamed. And all his children have been killed. But dining at the king's table. Is the descendant of David. Evil. Exiled. Exiled. But nevertheless, from David's line. And so a glimmer of hope remains. As we finish, I wonder if we can do more than just pay lip service to the idea that everything written about Jesus and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Well, I think we're making progress if we consider the themes we've considered this morning. We can begin to see how each will be resolved, fulfilled and completed through Jesus. So, for example, he's the one who will vindicate God's word as he dies, taking the punishment as set out in Genesis 3, removing the curse and crushing the serpent So that God's people are no longer banished from God's presence, but have a garden to return to. Jesus is Abraham's offspring, through whom not only his own people will be blessed, but through whom all nations will be blessed. When Jesus was in the wilderness, he didn't grumble, but held fast to the word of the Lord. He's the obedient son that Israel wasn't. He's also the Davidic king who never turns to the right or to the left but listens and obeys his heavenly father leading his people in all righteousness. But the funny thing is for him to have achieved all this has depended upon the presence of an evil king Jehoiakim, who reigned for three months and was present at the exile of Judah. On the one hand, a thoroughly disappointing king of Israel, but on the other, it was his presence that led to the coming Messiah that would bring about the fulfillment of all the promises that God has made. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Jehoiakim, And that in your providence, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, graciously freed him and sat him at his table. And we do appreciate that this is all because of your sovereignty and that this is something that you've predetermined to happen and take place. So that your promises could be fulfilled to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to David, We do thank you that we are in the privileged position now of being able to uh, share in these promises as we are able to see the fruit of them. We thank you that we can serve under a true Adam who has dominion over the world. That we can live righteously because Jesus has died in our place. And that we can have the hope of a new garden city where we can live in your presence, be part of your people and dwell with you because of what your son has achieved. Amen. Well, I said at the start that there would be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things that we've been thinking about. That time has arrived. So any thoughts, questions, comments? yeah oh oh, yes Nikki sorry is he not there Yes. So the question is: Why is Jehoiakin not there in the genealogy of uh, Matthew? Which means, as in, or genealogy of Jesus found in Matthew. Basically, we have to start all over again. Uh, I've got a couple of possibilities. Just let me check Luke. Have you checked Luke's? Yes, so I think, I think there are two possible reasons. One is they have multiple names, um, but I haven't checked this out, so it could be, I mean, it skips, doesn't it, from Josiah in verse 11. And Josiah, the father of Jechoia and Niah, and his brother at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So I'm not saying this is true, but one possibility is Naya could be a different name for Jehoiakim. Or alternatively, they haven't given, I don't think in Matthew's genealogy they give every single king. So it might be in the same way that Joyce, Josiah skips a few, oh, I've lost two kings now, and goes to Jeho- Jehoianiah, where the Jehoiakins skipped. So when it says, was the father of, it doesn't necessarily mean he was literally daddy, <laughs> but rather he was, you know, great. Great grandfather or grandfather or father. So I think that's why it's missing. But I could have a proper look to find out the answer. Unless anyone else has any light to shed. Any other? Go on, Nathan, have you got something? No, any other questions for me not to be able to answer? (laughs) Okay, well, less there are a few people still looking down, but I think. There are no questions unless someone gets in quickly. This isn't looking like it's going to happen, so let's stop there. Okay, we're going to sing our next song, which is Be Thou My Vision.